Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the church. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. I'm going to go off half-cocked. You see, I want to record, but I haven't prepared anything. And the reason I want to record... (laughs) Oh, yes, you can hear the tone in my voice. I'm very upset. Let me start with a story. So, last weekend, I went to the funeral of the father of a very dear friend. And this friend of mine would have loved for his father to have received the benefit of a requiem mass in the church's ancient form. You see, a requiem mass, the prayers of a requiem mass, call to mind our sinfulness, our need for God's mercy, the necessity of praying for the souls of the dead. It's a, it's a send-off that you'll never forget because nobody leaves the church feeling great about the idea that the deceased is most certainly in heaven. But everyone f- leaves the church feeling as though we have done, are doing, and will do the best that we can to ensure that the soul of the deceased does not languish in purgatory. You see, love is a funny thing. It's not designed to just make us feel good about things. Love means telling your kids that they have to eat their vegetables. Love means telling your teenage child that no, just because they want to, they don't get to sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Love means telling a diabetic that they should probably not reach for the Snickers bar. Love means doing what is good for the other person, whether they like it or not. So love is not served by telling those who are grieving, oh, well, he's in a better place. She's in a better place. We don't know that. We can't know that. We know because it is a dogma of our faith that not everyone goes straight to heaven. We know that a number of souls upon judgment, after having rejected our Lord, his commandments, his church, suffer eternal damnation in hell. We know this, and we fear it, and we should fear it. Fear serves a purpose. When I touch the flames of a hot stove as a child, after my mother told me to keep my hands away, The burn hurts, but it reminds me. And from that point on, I'm afraid to touch that burner again 
The fear of pain keeps me safe. Hell doesn't exist simply as a disincentive to sin. Hell exists as a logical consequence of rejecting God. God says, I made you to know me, to love me, to serve me in this life and to be with me in the next. And if you choose, despite all of my efforts to reach you, despite all the graces that I have provided to you, despite the church that I established for you through the death and resurrection of my son, I will not force you to be with me in heaven. But where I am not, there is not love, not happiness, not joy. There is only suffering, torment, abandonment, isolation. Hell exists as a consequence of the radical nature of free will. As does love. You see, without free will, there's no hell, but without free will, there is no love. Without free will, we're a bunch of little robots, automatons that God programs and says, come to me, do what I say, you have no other choice. You're just going to follow my will and everyone will be happy and perfect and in conformity and alignment. And what good does that do? It's like playing with dolls or action figures and scripting it out so that they do exactly what you want, but a dollar an action figure can't love you. They're just your plaything. But a person, a person with intellect and will, free will, can love you. But they can also hate you. They can also be apathetic toward you. They can also hurt you and turn away from you. So if hell is a consequence of free will, so is purgatory. And purgatory shares with hell many of the same torments, the torments of fire, the torment of separation from God. But you see, in purgatory, that fire is purifying fire. It is refining fire. It's fire that burns away all of the imperfections, all of the attachments we still have to sin, even if we die, well, if we die in a state of grace. It burns away those unconfessed venial sins, the sins for which we may not be fully culpable or are not fully aware of. And purgatory is real suffering, but it's suffering with a purpose. It's suffering with hope. It's suffering Whereupon we know when we have concluded that suffering, when we have finished that marathon, we will get to be with God. And after having seen his face and faced his judgment seat, we have been told by saints who have had visions of purgatory that souls throw themselves, throw themselves into the fires of purgatory because they cannot stand to be in the presence of God with these blemishes on their soul. Having seen his goodness, having experienced the radiance of his face, they want to be cleansed of every iniquity so that they can truly exist perfect in his presence and in his sight. So something that the church has lost since the reform of the liturgy in the late 1960s 
And I say lost, but lost is something that happens by accident. Something that the church has subverted, something that the church has omitted, destroyed from our consciousness, is the awareness of sin and its consequences and the fact that no, just being a good person isn't enough and that no, we don't all get to go straight to heaven. We just don't. Most of us won't. Even those of us who live good and virtuous lives, who receive the sacraments, who receive last rites, who go to confession, who have a firm purpose of amendment, we still fall into sin. We still commit sin. We still are attached to sin. That's why we keep committing the same ones over and over again. Think about it. You go to confession for different sins every week, every other week, every month. No, you don't. There may be a few new ones here and there, but pretty much... (laughs) By the time you're in your 30s or 40s, you've realized you've confessed the same thing hundreds of times. So we have these attachments to sin that we need to be purified of. We have sins for which we have not done sufficient penance. The temporal punishment for those sins has not yet been removed. So purgatory is a reality and we, the living, have a duty and an obligation to pray for the dead and to try to remit those punishments for them because being on this side of the veil of tears, we have more efficacy in our prayers. The souls in purgatory can't pray for themselves. They can't free themselves by any work or merit, but we can do it for them. And the Requiem Funeral Mass has has a lot of bearing on not only grace is applied to the souls in purgatory, but as sort of a pedagogical tool to remind us of what we face at at our own inevitable death. There are some beautiful traditions uh, built into the prayers of that Mass. For example, when the body is greeted by the priest at the door of the church, um, it has sort of a, a reminiscent aspect to the traditional baptism which also begins at the outside of the church at the doors of the church coming in and the priest says come to his assistance ye saints of god come forth to meet him ye angels of the lord receiving his soul offer it into the sight of the most high may christ receive thee who has called thee and may the angels lead thee into abraham's bosom Similarly, there is an opening prayer that appeals to God's mercy. We are not you know, writing a hagiography of the, of the just departed. We're not uh, automatically appending them to the calendar and to the lives of saints. Instead, it says, O God, whose property is ever to have mercy and to spare, We humbly entreat thee on behalf of the soul of thy servant, whom thou hast bidden to pass out of this world, that thou wouldst not deliver him into the hands of the enemy, nor forget him forever, but command him to be taken up by the holy angels and to be born to our home in paradise, that as he had put his faith and hope in thee, he may not undergo the pains of hell, but may possess everlasting joys. We are beginning the Mass with prayers for the liberation of the soul of the departed, asking God for his mercy, asking him to send his holy angels to take the soul to heaven and free him from the pains of hell. 
The traditional mass includes the Dies Irae, which is a, a hymn that reads, Faint and weary thou hast sought me, on the cross of suffering bought me. Shall such grace be vainly bought me? Through the sinful Mary shriven, through the dying thief forgiven, thou to me a hope has given. Loving Jesus, Lord most blessed, grant to them eternal rest. Amen. Moving through the Mass, we see prayers like those in the preface. Through Christ our Lord in the hope of blessed resurrection has shown us, so that those who are saddened by the certainty of dying may be consoled by the promise of a future deathless life. For to thy faithful people, O Lord, life is changed, not taken away. And when the home of this earthly sojourn is dissolved, an eternal dwelling place is being prepared in the heavens. These are beautiful, beautiful prayers. And then at the end of the Mass, and I'm, I'm running through it quickly, just some of the highlights, but at the end of the Requiem Funeral Mass, there is the final absolution of the dead, you know, it's it's a conditional absolution. It's efficacious only insofar as their soul was prepared upon death. But the priest stands before the casket and says, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, O Lord. For, save thou grant him forgiveness of all his sins, no man shall be justified in thy sight. Think about this. I'll stop there for a moment. No man shall be justified in thy sight unless you, Lord, grant him forgiveness of all his sins. This, this is the message of our faith, not, well, we are sad, but Mary is in a better place, and she's waiting for us with Jesus in heaven. No, (laughs) maybe Mary's there. God bless her if she is, I hope that she's one of those rare saints who went straight there, do not pass go. Do not collect 200 years in purgatory. But most of us aren't going to do that. And so we're beseeching Lord through Christ acting through his priest. Who What, what better advocate to have than, than Christ acting through the priest, begging God to judge mercifully that soul? So again, from the beginning, this prayer of absolution at the casket, at the conclusion of the Requiem Funeral Mass. Enter not into judgment with thy servant, O Lord, for save thou grant him forgiveness of all his sins, no man shall be justified in thy sight. Wherefore, suffer not, we beseech thee, the sentence thou pronounce in judgment upon one whom the the faithful prayer of Christian people commends to thee to be a doom which shall crush him utterly. Let's break it down. We're using old language. It can be a little difficult to, to listen and, and catch the, the subtle meaning. Wherefore suffer not, we beseech thee, the sentence thou pronounce in judgment. We're asking God to pronounce a sentence of judgment to be not of doom, which shall crush him utterly. Please do not condemn this soul, Lord. Basically, that's what we're saying, or what the priest is saying. Rather, sustain him, the the departed, by thy gracious favor that he may escape thine avenging justice, 
who in his lifetime was signed with the seal of the Holy Trinity, baptism, who livest and reignest, world without end. Amen. I don't, I don't know how to explain to you the absolute profundity because it is profound. The first time you go to a Requiem funeral mass, it is profound. The black uh, vestments, the solemnity, the reverence, the supplications to God to have mercy on the soul of the departed. You find yourself when you're in that circumstance saying, Lord, please, when I die, please, let me have a mass like this to send me off. Because I'm going to need it. You know, I left the mass last Saturday, the funeral mass of my friend's father. The first thing that I did was I called my dad. And I said, Dad, I have kind of a weird request. And my parents um, don't regularly attend the traditional Latin mass. And they sometimes go, usually if we have something going on at a mass, there's a sacrament, first communion, a baptism, they'll come to mass with us, but they don't habitually go. And I said, dad, I got to ask you when the time comes, I know you've got some time, but when the time comes, I want you to consider having a requiem mass because I don't feel that I would be doing you justice or mom to give you the kind of mass that implies to those in attendance that you don't need prayers, that you are not in need of God's mercy. I want to know that I've done my due diligence, that every aspect of the liturgy that, that sends you off from this life reminds every person present of their own mortality and of the need that you have from this point forward to pray for your soul every day, every rosary, every mass in the commemoration of the dead. Pray for your soul because we do not assume that you are in heaven and we here on earth can lessen the suffering of purgatory through our supplications and sacrifices, through the masses that we have offered for you. Why? Why would anyone who loves anyone not want to do everything in their power to lessen the suffering of that loved one? What kind of cruel, vicious, ugly human being would tell everyone, the person who just died that you love, they don't need prayers. Because they do need prayers. And to say something like that, whether it's ignorant or not, comes from a place of malice. It may not be the malice of that priest or that person. Often enough, they're ignorant. But there is malice at work. First, the malice of the devil, who, (laughs) think about it. If he can't grab a soul at the hour of death, which is when he will try the hardest, 
then he can at least prolong their suffering in purgatory by convincing the living that they don't need prayers. And he can also ensure that at least some of the living will reach the conclusion that getting to heaven is easy, that the road is wide, not narrow. That the camel doesn't have to go through the eye of a needle, but a wide-open six-lane superhighway. Everyone, everyone at every funeral in the modern church hears that the departed is in a better place. It is presumption, arrogance, hubris, wickedness. And I joked later that same day on Facebook, I said, look, I want it on the public record. When I die, I want a requiem mass. And if anyone implies, I know this is far-fetched, but if anyone implies that I am already in heaven, so help me God, I will haunt you from beyond the grave. I will tie your shoelaces together. I will laugh as you faceplant. You may not, if you are any friend of mine, leave me in that place without the assistance of your prayers. And if it's only self-serving, then pray for the dead, because if you free souls from purgatory, they will always pray for you. It's a bad reason to do it, but it's a reason. So these requiem masses do something for us that the modern funeral rite does not, because the modern funeral rite of its very nature glosses over some of the eternal realities that we face, the eschatology, the last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And it's made worse by the, the provision for improvisation where the priests can, you know, they can just say things that just are not in conformity with the Catholic understanding of the theology of the dead. So I'm telling this story. This is not the reason why I'm mad. The reason I am upset, the reason I'm angry is because I read today about a priest in Germany by the name of Father Adolf Mohr. He was 86 years old, same age as my friend's father, and he died last Friday in Rheinbollen, Germany, um, from cancer. Now, this priest, after he retired from active ministry, according to uh, this story, originally from Gloria TV. Um, he returned to the old mass of his youth. It's what he grew up with. And when he was no longer in a public setting where he was compelled to say the new mass, he went back to it. Now in his will, in his will, he expressed the wish to be buried in this rite with a requiem funeral mass. His parish priest, apparently being a decent sort of fellow, guaranteed him in writing that this wish would be respected. But, poor, poor Father Moore. He died in the, in the, in the diocese of Trier, in Germany. Uh, 
Germany is a cesspool of despair when it comes to the Catholic faith. Let's just put it that way. They have been a, a curse, a plague on the church since Martin Luther's time, and they never seem to stop. But Bishop Stefan Ackerman, who is the Bishop of Trier, he forbade the Requiem Mass. Forbade it. Now, in this report, they say that Ackerman is someone who likes to speak about mercy. That's cute. The people who talk about mercy the most, just verbal diarrhea about mercy, 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 are the ones who show the least mercy. They are the malicious insidious infiltrators of the faith who promote that people stay wallowing in their sin. Whether it's communion for the divorced and remarried, whether it's compassion for homosexual relationships, whether it's an acceptance of contraception or cohabitation, you'll notice... (laughs) Almost every time mercy is applied to sexual sins. Almost always. Oh, we just, we can't expect them to do more than this. We have to be merciful. Leaving people in their sins is evil. Full stop. And that's what this Bishop Ackerman of Trier is known. He is known for doing. Last year, before even the Synod, back in February, it was reported widely that Bishop Ackerman had had come out in um, in some public statements. Uh, I think it was a media interview with a German newspaper, and he said, quote, a new marriage after divorce is regarded as a permanent state of mortal sin, but that that no longer fits the times. He said that when it comes to birth control, quote, the distinction of natural and artificial contraception is also somehow artificial. I'm afraid that no one understands it anymore. End quote. He also made comments Rejecting the church's language about homosexual acts being disordered. In fact, he said specifically, quote, The Christian image of man is based on the polarity of the sexes, but we cannot just say that homosexuality is unnatural. So this is a guy who wants to make sure that people get to do whatever the hell they want. Whatever they want. doesn't matter. You want to commit sodomy? One of the sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance? Dive in, buddy. You want to live together? No problem. Oh, you have an adulterous second marriage? Not an issue with me. Contraception and NFP? Same thing. There's no distinction between artificial contraception and those methods which the church has always accepted as part of a design 
God's design for human sexuality. I'm at a loss for how someone could do something so vile as to violate the wishes expressed in the will of a priest who died just to have a mass that he felt would help him to obtain the graces for eternal salvation. This is where we are. This is what it's come to. These are the people, the kind of shepherds, wolves in shepherds' clothing, who are advocating for this licentiousness in the church. And it's not and has never been about mercy. It has never been about kindness. It has never been about an acceptance of God's grace. It is about selfish behavior. Absolute self-love and self-regard. Do the things that feel good for you even though they send you to hell. Who says that to you? over and over and over again throughout your life. Satan. I know I sound like the church lady, but seriously, this is how the devil works. He whispers in your ear the seductive temptation. Commit this sin. Oh, it's going to feel so good. It's going to be worth it. Do this thing. You know you want to. Don't listen. Don't listen to your conscience. Don't listen to that little voice telling you not to. It's not really that bad you're going to feel so much better if you just do it the rules don't matter who set up these rules anyway what kind of authority do the bishops have look at them they can't even they can't even keep sexual abuse of their own under control all these lies these lies whispered in your ear and then the moment you fall into that sin he's on you you evil, nasty human being. You vile excuse for a Christian. How could you? How could you? You disgust me. You don't deserve God's mercy. Don't go to confession. Priest isn't going to forgive you. You've confessed this sin a thousand times. That's how he works. Anything he can do to keep you away from doing the right thing to keep you indulging your passions. And trust me, because that's what ends up happening next. After he tells you how disgusting you are, then he says, you might as well do it again. It doesn't make any difference. You've already screwed up. Just do it. Do as much as you want. Who cares? You're not worth it anyway. You're not redeemable. Just enjoy it. You might as well. It's all you're ever going to have. You're not going to heaven. You can't even stop doing this. That's how it works. And that's who these bishops are. They're mouthpieces of Satan. Commit these sins. We'll tell you it's okay. The institutional church will not only say it's okay, but will say, come on back and receive communion while you are in a state of mortal sin. We've already removed 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30 from the three-year cycle of readings in the lectionary in the New Mass. Oh, what what passage is that? Oh, yeah, it's the one about not eating and drinking condemnation unto yourself. 
by eating and drinking the body and blood of the Lord unworthily. Yeah, we're not going to bring that up. We're not going to talk about that anymore. They want you. <laughs> I'm, I wasn't planning on saying this, but there's no, it, the conclusion is inescapable. These bishops want you to go to hell. They want Catholics to go to hell. Now, whether or not they recognize that that is what motivates them, they are so overcome by satanic inspiration. They have given themselves over so completely to the devil that they are using their apostolic authority to try to convince as many Catholics as possible to go to hell. Because that will be the end result. Souls falling into hell like snowflakes. Our Lady told us about this at Fatima. If you want to see if a bishop is truly merciful, don't look to see if he lets somebody who is in manifest and persistent and obdurate grave sin receive the Eucharist. Because that is not mercy. That is damnation. I am condemning you to eternal death. Just like the snake and the serpent in the Garden of Eden, when he asked, you know, what did God really say if you eat this fruit? He said, we will die the death. Dying the death is not just the death of the mortal body. It's the death of the immortal soul. It is the death, the ultimate final death. And what does he say to them? I tell you, if you eat of it, you will not die. Constantly lying. Constantly trying to convince us that if we just do what we want, if we just enjoy ourselves, things will be fine and they won't be that bad. Mercy does not keep people in their sin. Mercy does not suppress an order like the Franciscan friars of the Immaculate because of their desire to worship according to the church's ancient liturgical forms. Mercy does not forbid a Catholic priest from receiving a requiem funeral mass. Mercy does not attack those who are conservative or who believe that doctrine is an important and indispensable part of our faith. We are not dealing with merciful men. We are not dealing with men who love God. We are dealing with men who love themselves, who love power, who love the pleasures of this world and who are trying despite the fact that they are in the position and have the responsibility of bringing us to salvation are, are attempting to lead us straight to hell. Be very, very wary and very, very diligent in your caution 
scrutinize the voices that you are listening to. Do not allow false concepts of charity. Well, they're a bishop and I have to respect them. And so I need to just listen to what they have to say and give them the benefit of the doubt. Listen to me. You're right. We, we do owe respect to those offices. I would venture to say that if you're within the sound of my voice, you respect those offices more than many of the men who hold them. But they will not be there on your judgment day. They will not stand and defend you from God's accusation that you knew better. The benefit of the doubt is given to those about whom we have a doubt. But their actions make manifest. Their fruits allow us to know them. They do not love souls and they do not love God. Run from them. Do whatever you can to get out from under the influence of these evil men who are nonetheless princes of the church. So was Judas. And he betrayed our Lord and had him killed. Our Lord rose from the dead. He was not able to be tempted. Or at least not in a way that he would succumb. But we are. And our Judases, our modern day Judases, are trying not just to kill our bodies, but our souls. Flee from them and pray to God that you will be spared. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated. Copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel we've provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.